Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Soundington Media! Hey Brian, if you could ask just one question about the solar system, what would it be? Hmm, I think I would ask, where is Planet Nine? (gasps) That's what I would ask too, or is there a Planet Nine for sure? Okay, that's a good way of framing it, for sure, yeah. You know, I was curious because with school back in full swing, it's obviously time to read and study, but it's also time to think about some really big questions. And as we kick off our third season of Reach, we have some really exciting guests in store. I'm Meredith Stepien. And I'm Brian Holden. And this is Reach, a space podcast for kids. Welcome to Reach, a space podcast for kids. We're thrilled to be back with you for a third season. That's right. The past few months have been incredibly exciting in the world of science and space exploration, from launching rockets with new telescopes to learning from astronauts in orbit. We'll be talking a lot about exploring our solar system in this season of Reach, so we thought we'd reach out and ask our listener community a question that's been on our minds for a while. We asked our listeners if you could ask one question about the solar system, what would it be? Hi, my name is Ishan Joseph. I live in Sydney, Australia, and I'm nine years old. My question is, did our solar system form out of a supernova? And then Eleanor, age five, from Culver City, California, asks, how big is our solar system? Those were great questions. And asking big questions like those is one of the most exciting things about exploring space. And a few months ago, in fall of 2021, we were really lucky to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. James Green, then NASA's chief scientist and now NASA scientist and senior advisor and host of the Gravity Assist podcast, to share his perspectives after working in solar system exploration for over 40 years. We spoke about everything from planetary rovers and space probes to NASA's first version of the Internet and learned some pretty cool facts, including Dr. Green's take on the search for early microbial life in the solar system and advice for our listeners about pursuing a career in space or science. Let's have a listen. Welcome, Dr. Green. It's an honor to have you on Reach. You've done so much over the past 40 years. Could you tell us about what you do in your position at NASA? Well, thanks so much, Meredith. It's just a joy to be here talking to you about uh, what we do in NASA. You know, I've been in NASA for um, a long time. I've seen a lot of things, and I've had the wonderful opportunity to participate in so many activities. But that's led my career to be what I am today, which is the NASA chief scientist. So as the chief scientist, I advise the administrator. I work with uh, uh, the president's team. I talk uh, occasionally at Congress, and, and uh, we really ha- help move NASA's program forward to create 
the next set of things that we want to do in the area of science. Just earlier today, we talked about the age of the universe <laughs> and compared that to the age of the solar system. That's amazing. <laughs> well, um, we were also talking about the James Webb Space Telescope. That's NASA's new, really big telescope. I mean, it's just enormous in size. It's six times bigger than the Hubble in terms of the size of its mirror. And it's going to look at a wavelength that our eyes cannot see. It's infrared, and that's kind of heat. If you go to a fire and you put your hands out and you can feel that heat, you actually can image the fire in that infrared uh, wavelength. And, and, and this telescope does that. And so that's going to enable us to peer back in time because it can look very far away. And in the universe, the farther away you can look, the farther back in time you go. That is one of the most exciting concepts to me that I just love wrapping my head around looking back in time when we look up. Um, okay, so obviously it's an understatement to say that you've been involved in a lot of uh, NASA activities. <laughs> you led the Planetary Science Division and missions like the New Horizons probe to Pluto, the Messenger probe to Mercury, and the launch of the Juno probe to Jupiter. So what do these missions all have in common? Well, they go to fabulous places, and they're all part of a new discipline that NASA created called planetary science. You know, before we had the space program, everything we knew about the universe and our solar system in particular, we got from a telescope. And indeed, today, you can go to a planetarium and understand and see the sky and they occasionally we'll have telescopes that will be available for you to really look and see Jupiter or Saturn or many of the other objects. But for NASA, we go there. And when we go there, we learn all kinds of new things. Unreal. Our plans at NASA now are to go to the moon and learn to live and work on a planetary surface. We're developing the capability and the big rockets and the rovers and the habitats right now, such that we'll put them on the moon and we'll have humans on the south pole of the moon. Is that something you would do or would you be too scared? No, I'd do it. <gasps> Are you kidding? <laughs> I'd be too scared. I like Earth. I like Earth. <laughs> well, once we learn how to live and work on a planetary surface, then we're setting our eyes for humans to explore Mars. Now, of course, what's happening at Mars today is we have a many spacecraft orbiting Mars looking at the weather, just like we do here at Earth. When you mm -hmm. turn on your TV or you see the weather channel, all that data is coming from NASA satellites. NASA builds satellites and, 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 and other agencies operate them, collect that data and provide it to the weather service. Well, many of our missions do that to other planets. And so we have many spacecraft orbiting Mars right now. But we also have a couple rovers down on the ground. One's called Perseverance, and Perseverance has a buddy, and it's not a rover, it's a helicopter. Yes. And that's called Ingenuity. And then we have another rover called Curiosity. Yes, actually, I had a question about that. Can you tell us about the landing of the Curiosity uh, from 2012 and about the Sky Crane maneuver used to uh, touch down? 
Well, it's a brand new idea at that time on yeah. how we can put a one-ton rover down on the surface, something the size of your family car. And, and that's kind of hard to do. And so we figured out that we have to remove an enormous amount of energy. And this would be based on the velocity of the spacecraft. So when the velocity of the spacecraft goes from 13,000 miles per hour when we hit to the top of the atmosphere, and then we rover sits down on the surface, just inches per second, all that velocity we have to take out. And we do that in several ways. One, we hit the top of the atmosphere and we burn, burn off a, a layer that's in front of the, uh, of the spacecraft. It's called a heat shield. Mm -hmm. That slows it down to about a thousand miles per hour. Okay. Wow. Then we drop this heavy heat shield and we pop a parachute. That also slows us down to about 300 miles per hour. And wow. then we drop the rover down to the surface. Well, instead of crashing, we have to have retro rockets. And so the retro rockets fire, allowing what, what we call the sky crane, which is holding the rover underneath it to hover. And then we lower the sky crane down to the surface and the rover unfolds, gets its wheels out and then touches down perfectly and that worked great for curiosity and it worked great for perseverance so cool it took so much planning too well we borrowed some of these ideas you can think about the apollo capsules that returned from earth you know they have heat shields you see the parachutes on many of the capsules that we have but also imagine the helicopters that raise and lower equipment to the surface. Mm -hmm. And that's the other idea we borrowed. We used the sky crane then to hover, and then we lowered it down the rover to the surface before we broke the lines and then the, the, the helicopter, and in this case, it's called the sky crane, flew away and crashed because we didn't need it anymore. <laughs> so you're like, bye. <laughs> wow, that is so cool. Early on in your career, uh, you developed and managed SPAN, the Space Physics Analysis Network, which was NASA's first version of the internet. Yes. So how did that help lead to the way we access information and communicate today? Well, this was a long, long time ago. Uh, in 1980, when I started working at the Marshall Space Flight Center, and we had many investigators all over the United States uh, and my job at that time was trade data, get them the data that we had that they needed and analyze and work together and create scientific papers. And so the only way I could figure out to do that was to put in a computer link, a network from one computer to another. Now, this was a time when we didn't have any of that. You know, there was nothing like that uh, really available, and it really exploded in the, in the sense that everyone loved it. We could send electronic emails back and forth, things that we take advantage of today we were doing in 1980. And it was so exciting, probably, and new. It was, it was. Okay, 
So we heard that you have an asteroid named after you. Is this true? Asteroid asteroid 25913 James Green, right? Yes, 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 indeed. Uh, that was a real privilege. I was head of planetary science, which is the top position in NASA that oversees all of our planetary missions. And uh, in, in uh, my honor, they indeed uh, uh, named an asteroid uh, after me. That was a complete surprise. In fact, the naming of an asteroid is done by the discoverer. And so yeah. here the discoverer thought, well, I've already you know, do these things. I've already maybe even have an asteroid named after me. I think Jim deserves an asteroid. That is so thoughtful. Thank you, whoever you are. (laughs) Um, Okay, so after surveying so many places in the solar system, our listeners will probably be wondering what places do you think are most likely to harbor alien life? Okay, so... Uh, the kind of life that I like to look for is um, is not the kind uh, that's intelligent life, because uh, I think we've surveyed the solar system to the point where we know we're not going to find intelligent life in the solar system. Mm-hmm. But we could probably find signs of early life or microbial life, you know, life on very small scales. And so there are several places for that in the solar system. It turns out Mars is one. Uh, Mars has a significant amount of water where we think life needs water. You've got to go to these places where there's water. Mm -hmm. Now, that means liquid water. It's not frozen. It's liquid. And underneath the surface of Mars, it has liquid water in aquifers, just like the Earth does. And so that's a place where life might actually exist. And it, if it does, it will be microbial. It will be the very small parts uh, that you have to look under maybe a microscope to see it. Other places where there's liquid water, where there might be life, are many moons of these giant planets, like Europa, uh, indeed, that orbits Jupiter, or Enceladus, another moon that has a liquid inside its uh, icy crust and a big ocean, uh, that also could contain microbial life, maybe even a little more complex in both Europa and Enceladus. There's also places like Titan. Now, Titan is a moon of Saturn. It's bigger than the planet Mercury. It has its own atmosphere. It's a fantastic moon. And in fact, if it orbited the sun instead of Saturn, we would call it a planet. Wow. Yeah. And it has liquid on its surface. It is the only other object in the solar system with liquid on its surface. But it's not water. It's liquid methane. Okay. It's so cold that gases like methane actually become liquid. And so where there's liquid, there may be life. Now, life on Titan would be completely different than the life we know. And so that's what makes it exciting. Wow. What advice do you have for our young listeners dreaming about a career in space or science? Okay. What I found to be the most helpful is you have to uncover your passion. 
What do you like to do? What do you like to read? What do you what fascinates you? What can you do or that you do that enables you to dream about your future, to think, I can do these things. I would like to do these things and then work towards that. In other words, follow your passion. Yes. Wait, what do you like to read? Oh, I like to read all kinds of things. And that includes science fiction. Yes. Yeah. So sometimes in science fiction, uh, it's very very much like what things might be in the future. You know, it allows us to dream about our future. And if you don't spend time thinking about your future, you won't have one. So you have to indeed sit back and dream about what it could be like and then figure out how to make your dreams come true. Oh, I love this. Dr. James Green, this has been such an awesome honor to be able to interview you today. And uh, thank you so much for joining us on Reach. And I hope that you come back and join us again. Meredith, thank you so much. I'm delighted and I will certainly take up that next opportunity given that chance. Yes, thank you. Wow, what an incredible conversation with NASA scientist and senior advisor, Dr. James Green. Thanks, Dr. Green. And now we're excited to be joined by another very special guest on this week's edition of Did You Know? This time, it's a super fast celestial object. Let's give a big reach welcome to our coolest friend, Comet. Hello, Comet. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Brian and Meredith. I'm so excited to be here. Hey, did you know that comets are like giant snowballs composed of frozen gases, dust, and rock that orbit the sun? And while we vary in size, some comets are as large as small cities and can even expand to the size of small planets the closer we get to the sun. Wow, that's amazing. Did you know that it's also the sun that gives comets our characteristic tails made of dust or gas that can get longer as a comet approaches the sun and can end up millions of miles long? While the current number of known comets is 3,743, there are likely a billion, that's a lot, of comets orbiting our sun. There's so much to learn about you and your fellow comets, so what are your favorite things about being a comet? Oh, do I love being a comet, let me tell you. I love being so bright. I love being full of gas. I love flying through the solar system in the sky, high-fiving stars and elbowing stars out of my way as I fly around. And my most favorite thing is being related to the arguably the most famous comet of all, Halley's Comet. Oh, she is my aunt and she is so fun. She is a periodic comet that returns to Earth's vicinity about every 75 to 76 years. And guess what? You at home can look up in the sky and see her. And it makes it possible for you to see her maybe once or twice in your lifetime. Get this, the last time she was here was in the 80s, 1986. And now she's gonna come back around 2061. I hope you get a chance to see her when she comes around. That's Haley's Comet 2061. That's great to know. Thanks so much for joining us this week on Did You Know? Thank you so much for having me, Brian and Meredith. Take care. Wow, so cool to hear from our great friend, Comet. 
We should mark our calendars to say hi to Halley's Comet in 2061. Did you want me to, like, put a note on the fridge for that, or...? Will you put a note on the fridge? I think, I think we have time. I think we have time. I mean, on our fridge, the question is, do we have room? <laughs> a lot of wedding invites. <laughs> what an incredible conversation with Dr. James Green. You know, Meredith, when you think about space, it's amazing to consider how much there is to explore. Dr. Green's comments really made me think about the age of the universe. Yeah, we're so excited for upcoming episodes in our third season of Reach. And as we prepare our Reaching Out minisodes, we'd love to hear your questions. That's right. Just get your parents' permission and give us a call at 312-248-3402. Leave us a message with your first name, where you're from, and your question for a chance to be featured in an upcoming episode. You can also send us questions via email to reachthepodcast at gmail.com. We'd like to acknowledge that not everyone has access to computers or the internet. So if you're not able to get online, many local libraries offer publicly available internet access. Thanks for joining us on Reach, a space podcast for kids. We're your hosts, Meredith Stepien and Brian Holden. This episode of Reach was written by Sandy Marshall with Nate DeFort, Meredith Stepien, and Brian Holden. Reach is produced by Nate DeFort and Sandy Marshall, who's a solar system ambassador for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and edited by Nate DeFort. Our theme song and additional music was composed by Jesse Case. And our logo was created by Stephen Lyons. A very special thanks to Dr. James Green, NASA scientist and senior advisor and host of the Gravity Assist podcast, NASA's interplanetary talk show which you can hear via nasa.gov or wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of everyone at Reach, thanks again to Dr. Green for giving our listeners a gravity assist. Comet was voiced by the incomparable Kay Cannon, who you know from the Pitch Perfect films, and as the writer and director of Cinderella, starring Camila Cabello, available to stream now on Amazon Prime. Follow Kay online at Cannon. We'd also like to offer a special thanks to Kay Ferrari at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Liz Landau, and to everyone at NASA Space Place. And as always, a big thanks to the REACH Learning Community for all of your contributions. Thanks to Sean and Eleanor. Hey, Meredith, unrelated, did you know that a typical day on Mercury lasts 1,408 hours? Talk about a never-ending study hall. (laughs) Yeah. Trying to relate to the kids again? Yeah. Okay. If you're enjoying Reach, be sure to tell your friends and leave us a rating and review in your podcast player of choice. Or share an episode on social media. And if you'd like to find us online, visit at ReachThePodcast on Twitter and Instagram or on our website at www.ReachThePodcast.com. Reach is a production of Soundsington Media committed to making quality programming for young audiences and the young at heart. For more information on our shows and the people behind them, go to soundsingtonmedia.com. We've all been there. You're standing in a museum, staring at a painting, and all you can think is, I don't get it. To me, knowing the story behind an artwork is a huge part of knowing how to look at it. I'm Amanda, the host of the Art of History podcast, where we view history through the lens of some really great works of art. Each episode, we dive deep into the bigger picture behind some familiar and maybe not so familiar pieces. Check out Art of History now wherever you get your podcasts.